0: Welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show is presented to you by Gaslowitz-Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Adam Gaslowitz and Robert Port, and today we are talking about estate planning for families with,
1: special, with a special needs child. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today, Kim Martin, attorney with Nadler Birnaff LLC, and Bill Hall, senior trust officer with Fidelity Bank. Let's get started by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about your uh, practices and your business, Kim?
2: Um, well, as you said, I'm an attorney at Nadler Um My practice mostly focuses on working with families that have a child with special needs that will require planning for um, that child's entire lifetime. I also help families get guardianship if they have a child who turns 18 and who needs to be declared incapacitated.
1: And Bill, tell us about being a senior trust officer with Fidelity Bank. Sure, so uh, Fidelity
3: Bank, we're a community bank here based out of Atlanta, and we manage um, all kinds of trust in the states, uh, but we do have a particular practice in special needs trust. And, I'm our senior trust administrator, so I oversee all the administration for all of our, all of our trust accounts and also in charge of operations, but,
1: yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, let's get started by defining, if we can, what special needs means. Kim? Uh,
2: well, in my world, what it means is that there's somebody in the family, and very often it is a young child or a child, and I'm working with the parents uh, most of the time, but sometimes it's a sibling of, of somebody that, that has a disability that will cause them to qualify for benefits, and typically early in that person's life, those are means-tested benefits like SSI or Medicaid. And when I say means-tested, uh, what that means is that that person is not going to qualify for those benefits if they have more than $2,000 in non-exempt resources. So it's it's somebody who is going to need a lot of resources to take care of them throughout their life, and that and they they aren't really allowed to own anything to speak of. So well, we it's ta- somebody ta- that needs trust planning. So are are essentially. you talking about
0: people who generally have um, the kind of needs that would be incapacitating, or just people with learning disabilities? I mean, how do you, how do you distinguish between different kinds of special needs?
2: Well, um, if it, If you meet the statutory definition of disability, that's typically something more serious than a learning disability. What that means is that you're not gonna be able to engage in work that will earn you more than $1,180 a month. That's the statutory definition of substantial gainful activity. Um, um, it, It means that that would qualify you to receive initially SSI or Medicaid. Later in your life, you might receive SSDI or Medicare. It's, so it's somebody whose life trajectory is probably going to, to involve getting and qualifying for public benefits.
0: Okay. And so what sorts of public benefits? You mentioned briefly uh, SSI and other things. I mean, what, what mm-hmm. sort of benefits are most people looking at in the special needs world?
2: Um, well, the two big ones are Social Security, which is in the form of SSI, when, when people are younger, typically, and then Medicaid or Medicare, which is the healthcare component.
0: And these are all federal benefits? Yes, are, are they're
2: there, there federal benefits that are administered by the states.
0: Okay. Is it different in every state or is it pretty much the same?
2: Um, the federal benefit is the same, but the dollar amounts are often different. They vary by state. Um, and the way that you qualify for them can vary depending on the state.
0: Okay. Are there any individual state programs, or are we mostly talking about states administering federal programs?
2: It's mostly states administering federal programs. Okay.
0: Um, is there a, a, a process for getting and keeping those benefits? We'll get, we'll get to the special needs part, which I, I know is, is how you protect assets, mm-hmm. but is there a process for just qualifying for the benefits themselves?
2: Well, there's a series of tests, and some of them deal with the person's ability to function, and some of them deal with resources. So the means test that I mentioned, is you, you, if you pass the means test, that means that you have less than $2,000 in non-exempt resources.
1: What, what is the definition of non-exempt resources? Bill, are you, uh, is that something you deal with as a trust officer?
3: yeah I mean typically and I'll defer to Kim the, the expert on the list but generally from a trust officer perspective we we look at food and shelter as being those those assets that you got to worry about so when we're making disbursements out of the trust you've got to be very careful not to disperse funds directly for those benefits there's ways of getting funds out of a trust uh, in our case for those type of assets uh, or those needs uh, but that inherently the special needs is supplemental needs so.
1: Okay, and we may be getting a little ahead of ourselves, but yeah. while while you mentioned it, um, t- tell us about the supplemental needs in terms of examples of what those expenditures can be for out of the trust.
3: Well, they're they're wide ranging. I mean, um, uh, vehicle needs we often see a lot of those, um, particularly when we've got a settlement that it, that has come about, and so you need a special needs van, for instance. Um, various forms of uh, care uh, and and medical devices a lot of that that sort of thing in fact one of the things we do see are homes that are placed into a trust and so that then you can it's a way of kind of the
1: home can be retrofitted yeah for wheelchairs or other accessibility uh, needs Mm -hmm. but there's a limit to the kind of
0: I mean, you, you said there's a needs test, which means that if the, uh, the child that that has special needs has assets or resources, they're not going to qualify for a lot of these benefits. Is that right?
2: Well, at that point, it's possible to still qualify the child for benefits, but then you're doing damage control. Um, there are ways that you can place assets into trusts or other vehicles. Sometimes people use able accounts. Those are not the most the most flexible vehicles, but they're they're out there for some people that that need them.
0: Okay, so what is an ABLE account? I'm sure most people have never heard of those.
2: Well, they're they're fairly new. Um, They they came into existence a couple of years ago. Um, They were created under Section 529A of the Internal Revenue Code. So they actually have a lot of similarities to the 529 college savings plans that people are probably more familiar with. And they are accounts that you can fund with up to $15,000 a year and then if the if the account owner the child is employed you can put additional money in on top of that if, from the child's earnings um, and the account holds money in a way that renders it an exempt resource so if you have a child who inherits ten thousand dollars let's say obviously that means that the child has more than two thousand dollars in resources which is going to kick them off of ssi which is going to cause them to probably lose medicaid as well And the quick and dirty solution to that, if you don't wanna do a special needs trust, is to put that money into an ABLE account and then it becomes an exempt resource.
0: Okay, would that be done by a third party? If if you're leaving $10,000 to a child, you would leave it directly to this ABLE account as opposed to the child? Or or if you left it to the child, can the child then place it into an ABLE account?
2: The child can place it into an ABLE account. So generally, if you're aware enough to realize that you don't wanna mess up a child's ability to get benefits, the ABLE account is not where you would put the funds because the ABLE account has a Medicaid payback at the end of the child's life.
0: Okay, explain, explain what a Medicaid payback is.
2: Okay, well Medicaid keeps a running tab of all the funds that they expend on anybody's behalf during their lifetimes. And depending on how the funds are held, either during the child's entire life or starting at age 55, um, Medicaid will seek payback from the child's estate which would include any assets that are in an ABLE account at the Mm -hmm. end of the child's life
0: okay would it it include those assets if the ABLE account was funded by someone else's money yep okay so probably not the best reason it's really not
2: okay
1: so on on the ABLE accounts um, bill much like 529 plans is an ABLE account something that a fiduciary uh, like the bank needs to do, or is that something an individual can set up?
3: The individual still has to set it up.
1: Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I mean man, manage the assets and control the assets. Yeah, so
3: the assets are put into similarly like a 529, into a plan that has, has um, certain investment options to it. Um, we are starting to see, I've, I've funded my first ABLE account just last year, it's got a really narrow scope in my opinion uh, on when you want to fund those 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 uh those type of accounts um particularly if you've got someone of what i would call kind of high functioning um that wants a little bit of control and they 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 kind of view that account as a uh, a way to, to bring them some dignity of having some control over their finances versus the majority of their assets that are held in the trust that's kind of a a, a good use in my opinion for those
1: so the the beneficiary, if you will, the special needs uh, person, uh, can direct how those funds are used and and have access to them.
3: Yeah, yeah, they've got a. a did, did debit cards Kim, I think. Have Have you had any? Well, it,
2: you can use a True link card. Yeah. Which is kind of a hybrid between a debit card right. and a credit card, and I'm sure Bill has more more practical on the ground experience with that than I do because I think trustees use them a lot. It's a way to give your trust beneficiary access to funds as well in a way that won't qua- won't disqualify them so you know, that's
0: that, it sounds like those are only really good if you're going to be putting fifteen thousand in and, and that's getting spent during the year, so it's not accumulating yeah. money mm-hmm. okay. what, what do you do in situations where a family uh, wants their child to qualify for um, various government benefits but knows that that's not sufficient for the lifestyle that 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 child might need, um, so they want to fund other other, other means of the child having what it, what it uh, needs above what the government benefits pay for. What do you do in that situation?
2: Well, uh, that's, that's a huge part of what I do all day long. Um, there is this wonderful magical vehicle called a third-party special needs trust, or sometimes you'll hear it called a supplemental needs trust because exactly as you were saying, the goal of that trust is to supplement the needs that government benefits will provide for so that trust is a basket and it can hold anything that you put into it you can create one during life you can create one that exists under your will so it doesn't really exist until you're gone mm-hmm. um, but either way whatever assets are held in that trust are considered an exempt resource for so benefits purposes so they're
0: not counted against not counted against the child right, right? exactly
2: so if you put five million dollars into a supplemental needs trust you can still have a child qualify for the means-tested benefits like SSI and Medicaid.
1: So, one of the things you alluded to before, Kim, was the timing of doing this. And the inference was, don't do it after the fact. So, can you give our listeners some ideas of when they need to start thinking about doing this and the different circumstances you see in terms of the planning?
2: Well, I I think they need to start as soon as they've wrapped their heads around the fact that they have a child who's going to need care for the rest of his life. And I am the mother of a child with autism, so I know that that doesn't happen 30 seconds after you get that diagnosis. But after you climb out of the weeds and begin the process of worrying that is going to become what you do for a very long time, one of the things that it's appropriate to worry about is what's gonna happen to this child when I'm gone and I'm not here to write the check or go and bully somebody into giving them something that they need to have. And so trust planning is really the way you sort of create this almost immortal basket. It holds assets in a way that will keep them safe. It will keep them not only exempt um, from the for the means test, but it'll keep those assets protected from predatory people that might come into your child's life someday.
1: I, I and how it's all, about- so
0: It's also exempt from creditors?
2: Um, it, it can be, exe- yeah, it's exempt from the child's creditors okay. because it's never, at least if you're using a supplemental needs trust, a third party trust, it's never the child's money. And that's why we were talking about the fact that there's a Medicaid payback if you have an ABLE account. There's also a Medicaid payback if you use a different type of special needs trust called a first-party trust that would hold the child's money. The third-party trust has no Medicaid payback because that money never belonged to the child.
0: Okay, so you're talking about a... a trust that would be funded by the child's own resources. O- often mm-hmm. that would come from like a... Um,
3: inheritance, or, or inheritance
0: mm-hmm. went directly to them. Somebody
2: yeah. wins the lottery, or they get into a car accident. Or settlements, yeah. They get mm-hmm. damages. So in that case, if it's more than $15,000, the ABLE account is really not gonna help you. Okay. So that's when you need a different type of special needs trust, that, yeah. that damage control trust that I was talking about. And that is known as a first party special needs mm-hmm. trust. Or sometimes you'll hear it called a D four A trust. Okay,
0: but the but the goal would be to set up a third party trust. Parent, That's the parent, ideal. Parent funds a trust for a child, or or siblings, or, or I guess almost anybody, anybody. Other, other than the person who is the beneficiary.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, uh, can you add to that trust during
1: uh, during the life of the trust? You can. Okay. Um, so let's let's talk about situations where. It, If there's an unfortunate circumstance where where someone is in an accident and will need care thereafter for Mm -hmm. the rest of their lives, at what point in that process is it best to start thinking about (coughs) these kinds of issues?
2: It's really important in that situation to do it as soon as you possibly can because often if you're in an accident that's severe enough so that you now have a condition that's going to Qualify you for benefits for the rest of your life, that means you have probably needed some pretty expensive emergency care. And sometimes Medicaid will pay for that care, but Medicaid is keeping its little tally. And if you put the damages that you might get from a lawsuit that would result from that accident into a first party special needs trust, so that's the type of trust that's, that's designed to hold the assets that belong to the beneficiary, not everybody else's money. But the first-party special needs trust will also render those assets exempt for benefits purposes, and you can stop the clock running on Medicaid at least until the death of the beneficiary. So the sooner you get that first-party trust funded, the more money there's ultimately going to be to take care of that person
0: is it possible to structure the settlement of a, um, a personal injury case without the funds being considered first party funds
2: nope
3: Generally not. <laughs> okay.
0: if there were <laughs> that that's what easy. we
2: would all do just thought i'd ask
3: <laughs> um, i think it's important distinction and you i think you said it but i, I don't want to gloss over the first party versus the third party and what happens to those assets mm-hmm. after after the beneficiary has passed away,
2: yep, that's important.
3: Uh, yeah, where first party is, it's going back to fulfill the medi- Medicaid, Medicare, uh, payback, whatever that amount is, and we all know over a course of a lifetime it can be really large, and so sometimes it depletes the trust. Versus the third party goes to whomever you've designated as the beneficiary, uh, the remainder.
1: And and I take it as um, serving in a fiduciary capacity, you have had to have situations where money gets paid back uh to to medicaid
3: oh yeah 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 no there's a uh, very strict guidelines you've got to reach out to them as soon as the death of the the beneficiary and get the uh bill if you will of of what's owed and and you're required to pay those funds back and, yeah. and if you forget do they do they notify you <laughs> <laughs> you will definitely be notified yeah. okay. so There's five. no one, forgetting. Of, one yeah. of the things about a first party uh trust is that as a fiduciary we're required to file an annual accounting with Medicare, and so they're 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 looking over the uh, expenses uh, very closely to make sure we're not violating any any of the terms, and so th- they definitely know when when if life events have happened that sort of thing.
0: Can they reach past the, in, in the case of a first party trust, can they reach past the assets in the trust if there's not enough to pay back fully the uh, government? Or are they well, limited?
2: the the claim is against the estate of the person who's been receiving the benefits, so if you have let's say let's say somebody owns a home in their own name that home is an exempt resource for medicaid purposes mm-hmm. but at the end of that person's life that home is going to get turned into cash and it's part of the person's estate
0: and so that's part of so, the callback from the government yes okay
2: which is why if if instead the home is owned by a third party trust the person can live in it for the amount of time that that makes sense for them you can turn it into money when you need money instead of a house, and there's no payback at the end. So,
3: In fact, so. I see a lot of strategies of our uh, trust are to create. If when we've got a first-party trust, we have a a third-party uh, trust to handle the home place, so that the home is treated differently. And you, I assume or you're so. trying to deplete first-party trust
0: assets before third-party trust assets. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. right. So, so if you're uh, planning for. Uh, state planning for a family and they have a special needs child Uh, is it as simple as whatever would have gone to that child should go to the special needs trust and not to the child directly I mean is there more to it than that
2: it depends on how early in the process I get them because often a danger is well-intentioned grandparents who have already created a trust that already exists that's already funded I had a family that had a trust created as a pot trust, so a trust to benefit all of the grandchildren all together, and it had $30 million in it,
1: <laughs> is, is, is and they
2: were so unhappy
1: to find out. <laughs> is, so how do, you, how, do you, how do you address that? Can you address that?
2: You can. It is not as easy as doing it right in the first place, but um, you can do something called judicial modification if the language is there, so if if we have any language in that original trust to say um, this money is for the support of this child or to supplement the child's needs or any recognition that a particular grandchild has special needs. And sometimes that language isn't there. Sometimes the grandchild wasn't alive when the trust was created. And often people that have that kind of money are extremely focused on tax planning and they are not thinking at all about special needs planning because okay. why should they be?
0: Okay, so, so, a, cou- a, couple so with no <coughs> a couple with no grandchildren um, leaves their estate to, um, you know, to the surviving spouse and then to their children. And, and uh-huh. if there's anything left to their grandchildren, to the lineal descendants, which they don't have at the moment. Right. Uh, once that kind of plan is in place and, and those grandparents die, is there anything that can be done with that kind of general language which is what we would generally see in a will
2: Mm -hmm. it 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 really just depends very much on exactly the words that are that are there i mean if they've left assets to their children and they die and their children inherit then then the children need to do the planning so if it's a multi-generational trust and if the language is there the way to do it is to get it judicially modified which means you're going to a court and you're saying the grantor's intention here was really to take care of everybody's needs in a way that wasn't going to supplant federal benefits. And we know that because we have all these affidavits saying that grandpa was very worried about his little grandson who had Down syndrome. And even though there are no words in this trust that say, we want this to be a supplemental needs trust, we're here to show you grandpa's intent was that this really would have been a supplemental needs trust had he only heard of them and had they you know had he known that that's what he needed to do that's what he would have done and if you can convince a judge of that then you can get the trust judicially modified so that they'll essentially go back in time to the day it was signed and they'll put the language in there
0: and and it's like magic and that that would pass scrutiny with um it would if
2: if you got it judicially modified to be a third party trust then it has to be approved by medicaid so Medicaid is going to want to see the original trust. And if Medicaid tells you that they'll accept the judicial modification to a third-party trust, then you're good. If not, you may have to have it judicially modified to be a first-party trust, which is not ideal because there's a Medicaid payback. But at least you're keeping the, quali- the, the qualification for benefits in place. Okay.
0: All right, you're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz-Frankel. And today we're talking with Kim Martin, an attorney with Nadler Birnath, and Bill Hall, senior trust officer with Fidelity Bank. And our topic today is estate planning for families with a special needs child. Uh, what happens when gifts are just left outright to someone who later turns out to be incapacitated? Is Is that the same situation we're talking about where the child just child or someone on behalf of the child just needs to take that money and put it into some sort of a trust
2: yes all right. so if, if it's a small gift if it's under $15,000 the least expensive thing to do is put it into an ABLE account okay. and that's easy all right um, it's not the the ideal way to do it in my opinion but it it's a way to do it if it's more than $15,000 and you want to get rid of the funds quickly because you're worried about benefits then the way to do it would be to put it into a first-party special needs trust Um, and have a trustee manage it.
0: uh, Do you generally need to have uh, guardians or conservators in place in order to make any of these things happen?
2: You don't necessarily have to. First-party trusts are tricky because they can only be created by certain people. First-party trusts are statutorily created trusts and they are very heavily regulated. So only a parent, a grandparent, a guardian, a court or the beneficiary themselves, if they're competent, can create a first party trust. So sometimes if somebody does get a windfall from somewhere and they don't have living parents or grandparents and they're not under guardianship, that leaves a court, which means you have to go to court and explain to a judge, here's what we need, will you please order this, which is not easy.
1: So it seems to me that as part of a state planning, to the extent the future is unpredictable one of the things you may want to do is have language in there which says to the extent any of my bequests or any of the trust created here under uh, have a beneficiary who is qualified as a special needs individual x y and z would that be an appropriate way to try and you know deal with the unforeseeable
2: absolutely that's that's exactly what what i do in all of my planning even if the rare person who finds their way to my firm somehow and doesn't have any special needs issues and they just need an estate plan. Even for those plans, I put in a backup special needs trust. So there's a testamentary special needs trust in every will that I write. Because for that very reason, that's, that's exactly and the and way that, to... That
0: only gets funded if there's a special needs situation right. at the time. Right. Okay. Uh, does anything in particular happen uh, when a child turns 18? And they have special needs
2: lots of things
0: tell us some of those things (laughs) okay but not all of those things just some of those things
2: oh gosh I'll have to pick my favorite ones well one of my favorite ones is that the child often is that's when parents start to think about petitioning for guardianship over their child and of course that's not appropriate 100% of the time but a lot of times in my world if you have a child who's technically an adult and technically able to go out in the world and do things like sign contracts and get married and make terrible decisions that are going to cause him to get taken advantage of the way that you prevent that from happening is you file a petition with the probate court in the county where the child lives and you ask the court to find that the child is incapacitated and in need of a guardian and most of the time, it's parents seeking guardianship over their adult children. So that's, that's a big thing that happens a lot when the child turns 18, right. if necessary.
1: And, and just to make clear, I don't believe you're saying that is a substitute for any of this type of special needs planning nope. we're talking about. No. This is just so there's
0: somebody who has the ability to make decisions for an adult who can't make them for themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Right. Not, so that's. Not
0: necessary before the child turns 18, though
2: well right before the child turns 18 they're a minor okay so parents they just the have yeah their parents are just making decisions the way that parents always make decisions mm-hmm. for all of their kids we t-
1: poor, <laughs> poorly generally <laughs> we, we try to make decisions right?
2: yes
3: uh, we were talking before the show specifically about this topic and that oftentimes um, even after 18 you'll be allowed to make some decisions particularly if a child mm-hmm. has severe special needs and so uh, oftentimes you just don't get questioned or asked and you're allowed to sign kind of informally. It's until you get that one person that really is a stickler and looks at the rule and says, wait a minute, and then you're kind of scrambling. So that's why it's important to kind of plan up to right around the age 18. Yeah, what What mm-hmm. else happens at 18? I know we,
0: we talked uh, before about the fact that the, those children still have to register for the draft if there's they a do. draft, right?
2: Yes, and, and that's shocking to a lot of parents because, you know, you're looking at a child who is clearly never going to be able to, to serve in the military but boys at least and girls do girls have to register for the draft these days i don't think so i don't i don't think so either so but if you have a boy who turns 18 regardless of whether he's capable of serving in the military or not you have to register them for the draft and then if there ever is a draft the military will decide whether that child is able to serve
1: okay and are there any other things that happen when someone turns 18 irrespective of their special needs that i'll say governmental entities want you to register for or note or do
2: um there probably are but the the other big thing that that i was thinking about when my families have their kids turn 18 is it's it is special needs related but that's when it's that's when it's time to apply for SSI, which is a huge deal.
0: You don't apply for that until you turn 18?
2: Well, you're not gonna qualify for it until you turn 18, typically. I mean, any any family that has the means to seek help with this type of of situation is gonna have more than $2,000 in resources as a family. Mm -hmm. And until the child turns 18, the family's resources are attributed to the child because the family has an obligation to take care of a child who's under age 18. So once you turn 18, for social security purposes, you're considered to be a household of one, which means what you have is considered a resource to you, but what your parents have doesn't matter anymore. So if you turn 18 and you have less than $2,000 in non-exempt resources, that means that you'll probably qualify for SSI. So that's when it's time to apply for that.
1: Sure. And, and what do you do with um, children who turn 18 but don't qualify for extended coverage under their parents' uh, medical insurance until age 26? What options do parents like that and, and the special needs individual have?
2: Um, that is where Medicaid generally will come in. Medicaid is a payer of last resort. It's medical insurance, of course. But even if a child is on a parent's medical policy, which they can be usually until they turn 26, Um, Medicaid is there as sort of a backup plan. So at age 26, that's when Medicaid becomes a big deal, because for most families, they can't keep their disabled child on their health insurance after that child turns 26. So Medicaid becomes the primary source of insurance for that child.
0: Uh, is there any planning that the uh, that people do with life insurance? Is there any particular use of of those types of resources in special needs planning?
2: Yeah, life insurance is a great resource to use for funding a special needs trust, and I'm sure that Bill sees this all the time. You can put anything into a special needs trust, really. Um, IRAs are problematic. You you can do it, but it's trickier to use an IRA to fund a special needs trust. But life insurance is a really easy, straightforward thing to use. So what a lot of people do is they'll get a life insurance policy, typically a permanent life policy because we are not Clark Howard families. (laughs) (laughs) We are not the people who should buy the nice cheap term insurance. That's going to disappear when our child is 22, because we don't care what happens when our child is 22 as far as those needs are always going to be there. Mm -hmm. So typically I advise people to buy permanent life insurance. Um, and name the third party special needs trust as the beneficiary of that life insurance
1: so bill let's let's talk a little bit about how <clears throat> you as a trust officer manage the assets that come into the special needs trust what's what's your approach and and how do you from intake going forward figure out how this money is going to be managed
3: yeah well we've got a lot of different um, things you have to look at when when you're particularly with the special needs trust Um, oftentimes there's been if it's a first party and there's been a settlement there's been some sort of life care plan that's been spelled out Um, so that kind of projects out what the needs are going to be over time Um, and even if you don't you kind of get with the family see what kind of needs they're currently having and and what they'll project out in the future and that'll kind of give you a path on where you need to kind of go from an investment planning standpoint um, I assume
0: you're budgeting at the same time, right? You're yeah. You f- figure out what the needs are and what's exactly. that.
3: Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, at, the, at the same time, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're corporate fiduciaries, so we're not out here trying to hit speculative home runs and assets. We're, we're being more conservative in general, I would say, uh, with with these type of assets, particularly when you've got planned outflows over such a long period of time. So.
1: And I'm presuming sometimes you get – Non-liquid assets. You know, stocks and bonds are fairly easy to deal with in terms of liquidity needs. How do you, how do you deal with non-liquid assets? Interests in business, or undeveloped property, or um, who knows what? Uh, jewelry, artwork. <laughs> uh,
3: kind of like you would in any any. Uh, regular estate plan, you just kind of have to put your arms around them. I would say I don't see as many of those type of assets in special needs trust because the family has awareness on the front end, so they've created some sort of liquidity. Like like Kim said, oftentimes that there's a purchase of a life insurance policy that funds a special needs trust. So, um, but are yeah. people yeah. leaving what?
0: houses to uh, special needs trust?
3: Uh, rarely do i see that um, sometimes there is some provisions made uh and, and again that's where we would carve out maybe a third party trust where the the family wants the child per se let's say they're an adult by this stage they want them to remain in the home place mm-hmm. so that there's some continuity there and so that's when you see those sort of instances
0: um you, you said uh iris are not a good thing to put into uh these th- types of trusts. are you talking about retirement plans in general a 401k plan a 403b plan i mean there's a whole list of them. But.
2: Well, I mean, there's nothing you certainly can put an IRA into a, a special needs trust. It's just that um the question isn't really can you do it so much as can you stretch it? Can you can you exceed 5 years? Because when you leave an IRA to a type of trust that doesn't have conduit trust provisions, and I know we're getting all in the weeds <laughs> here. I'm sorry. Right? But um then there's something called the 5-year rule that m- might apply. We address that issue when we create a third-party trust, and we allow our trustee to take distributions from the IRA in a manner that will allow that trust to be to hold the IRA and not take all the assets out in five years, which is gonna have income tax consequences. So we, we have a provision that allows the trustee to open a bank account in the name of the trust, take the distributions in a way that makes them taxable, which is really what the IRS is interested in and then put them in the bank account instead of giving them to the trust beneficiary which you can't ever do okay, so it's and, never and, and
0: just so we're clear and so the the listeners are clear are we talking about uh, uh, making the special needs trust the beneficiary of these retirement plans versus mm-hmm. you can th- versus contributing the entire plan to the trust <coughs> well is there a difference
2: yeah I mean you can't you can't transfer an IRA while you're alive to anybody because you're just not allowed to sure but you can name a special needs trust as the beneficiary of an IRA and and you were asking about 401k plans and 403b plans what would happen is if you did name the trust as the beneficiary of one of those types of plans then the administrator would just have to roll it into an IRA and then in the form of an IRA the trust could take it
3: and, and I would reframe it I wouldn't say that it's something we would discourage because I think more and more you're finding more assets that are your your bulk of your wealth is in a in a retirement vehicle sure. mm-hmm. and so i think it's more of not whether it's a good idea or bad idea. i think it's a great idea you just need to be careful and seek a professional to do it because you know it, i i would rather you take the time and find someone that can help put it into a special needs trust or or even you know, standard irrevocable trust depending on the situation um versus just leaving it outright to someone where that's really not your desire but you're just doing that because if you're scared to Leave the trust as a beneficiary.
1: Um, Let's talk about uh, an issue that that unfortunately is is fairly common in in society today, and that is divorce. Um, are there any particular issues that ought to be considered when parents of a special need child are divorcing?
2: That's that's something that I've started to do a lot of work on. Not not because I went out looking for it. It just seems to be coming in the door a lot because that is definitely an issue that affects families that have a special needs child, I think in a disproportionately large way. Um, The big thing that I see the most in settlement agreements is that very often those agreements will provide for post-majority child support. And in some cases, the agreement will provide that child support has to be paid forever for a child which is not Georgia law, but if you agree to it in a settlement agreement, then um, it it can, be, it can be put in place. Well, are, um,
0: is child support considered the child's assets or the mother's? As far as social are.
2: security and Medicaid are concerned, that is the child's resource, even if it's getting paid to a parent, which means there's another test. In addition to the resource test, there's an income test Before the age of 18, and for for most of our kids, this is not an issue because there are just so many other reasons that they're not going to get SSI that we don't necessarily care. Before the age of 18, though, Social Security will disregard $20 plus one-third of whatever child support is paid. I know that's completely ridiculous. I see you making faces. This is why I have a job, though, so, you know, don't laugh. (laughs) These are important things. $20 plus one-third of whatever child support is getting paid. The other two thirds will count as income to the child and it will offset SSI dollar for dollar. So you have to do all this math, but it gets easier when you turn 18. So when the child turns 18, which is when realistically we're looking at qualifying for SSI, there's still the $20 disregard, but 100% of the remaining child support offsets SSI dollar for dollar. So the maximum SSI amount that you can get right now is um, $771 a month. So if the child's getting, say, $1,000 in child support, that brings SSI down to zero, which means you're also not gonna get that easy qualification for Medicaid. So now you have no SSI and no Medicaid, which is gonna become a really big problem around age 26 when it's gonna become very hard to insure that child.
0: can 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 the divorce settlement specify that that in lieu of child support, um, the spouse paying the child support is going to pay uh, money into a special needs trust instead?
2: Yes and, and, in, that, and that would be fact, su-
0: that would be sufficient to, to well, solve this problem.
2: It, it, depending on how it's done, yes, and in fact one of the things that that I'm finding people hiring me to do lately is look at settlement agreements and suggest wording to address that very issue. So if the settlement agreement requires that the child support be paid into a first-party special needs trust, then we don't have that income issue. We don't have the offset of SSI, so the child can qualify for SSI and still get the child support. And it's, the can Medicaid payback is not so much of a big deal in that situation because very often the money is going to go into the trust and go right back out again.
0: Can it be paid into a third-party trust?
2: No, it can't because it's first-party money it's so money that belongs to the child in a sense
0: so there's no so there's no way to pay child support or something like child support into something that is a third party special needs trust
2: there is not
1: so th- so the point once again is to seek expertise as people are going through this very difficult process mm-hmm. rather than afterwards when the final settlement is done the courts approved it and everybody's gone off into the sunset mm-hmm.
0: One last question as we sort of wind down, and that's, again, with regard to corporate fiduciaries. A lot of people would, would uh, perhaps be inclined to name a family member to be the trustee of a special needs trust. Um, what, what's the difference between having an individual do it versus a corporate fiduciary? Uh,
3: a lot of issues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know you'd prefer a pr- corporate fiduciary. Well, particularly speaking to uh, litigators, I, I suspect you would back me up in this, this assertion that the majority of uh, litigation matters that occur with trustees are with personal trustees, not a corporate trustee. Uh, Almost all of them, probably.
0: uh, uh, Upwards of 95% of individual fiduciaries, not corporate.
3: Yeah, and and I don't, and again, you guys are the experts in that, but I I would say that uh, a high percentage of those aren't malintent. It's just not the expertise and the knowledge base to do so, Um, and and you can easily get off track, and and you didn't intend to. Is it hard to manage a special needs trust? Um, Is it harder than just a regular trust? Yeah, it it is. It it requires much more attention to detail, much more. You have a lot more interaction with the beneficiaries, a lot. uh, In fact, what we're finding in the industry, a lot of the larger corporate uh, trustees have kind of exited the business because it's, it's, it's more labor intensive, if you will and um that's why i kind of pride you know our bank that we've decided we wanted to be in this niche just because we're we're community bank and that's kind of what we kind of specialize in and so we like the fact because i've seen the other side of this um early on in my career in st louis uh it was five million dollar trust and the provisions were left the family member had a lot of discretion versus the trustee did and they depleted that trust and because they could fit a lot of things into what they said was for supplemental needs for the child i remember a $16,000 tree request you know for trees because the child liked to look at trees they said it was really landscaping but you know we were our hands were tied so the the point being uh there's a lot of nuances to to how you manage the trust and that's where the corporate trustee really comes in and and it can be drafted in such a way where you know particularly when Kim drafts these trusts, there's family input into the decision it's not like we're in some black box making these arbitrary decisions um it, we're just the experts doing the heavy lifting if you will
0: and when there's a corporate fiduciary i assume they do all the accounting they de- deal with the tax uh, returns and everything the trust needs right? I,
3: exactly the accounting uh it, when it's a first party we, we take care of the uh, filing the annual accountings uh, as well in that regard and so um it, it's really the heavy lifting and all the burdens on the corporate trustee who specializes in it and, and by the way unlike a personal trust uh, personal uh, fiduciary I'm getting audited at least twice a year by the state and by external auditors. And so you know we've got to keep our books and records and, and, and knowledge about what we're doing pretty quickly.
1: And, and people always have a concern about cost. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I've told you, Bill, that my view of hiring and using um, a professional fiduciary is I view that as my insurance premium or an insurance premium to reduce the risk that something untoward will happen with the assets. Yeah. Um, are you able to generically tell our listeners the the range of costs involved, or is it is it very much uh, uh, specific to to each trust and each need?
3: No, I'd say there's a general range in the industry, if you will. Um, if you think about investment management, I think a lot of people have always said, you know, one percent for people to manage your assets, right? Um, then you layer a trust on it and now you've got all these additional duties and responsibilities for trustees. So in my opinion, you know, we start out at about 1.5% of the market value of a trust on Mm -hmm. an annual basis, which is pretty common in the industry because it's a little bit more labor-intensive. A normal just trustee ship might be 1.25-ish. And so there's a little bit of premium for it, but, but honestly when you're talking about the investment management and all the responsibilities that you're taking on, uh, in my opinion, it's, it's, a, it's a steal.
1: There, yeah. it, it is. Yeah. There are a lot of mutual funds who are charging people a lot more than that Absolutely. and not doing uh, a tenth of what you're doing. Right. All right, as we're wrapping up, uh, we'd like each of you to uh, provide our listeners with your contact information, website, any social media you care to, shag, uh, care to share, uh, so that if they have any uh, follow-up questions or desire to reach you, they can. Kim?
2: um well probably the best place to check out the firm is our website and that's nadlerbirnath.com. and Birnath is b-i-e-r-n-a-t-h no one can ever spell that
1: okay right. do you want to share a phone number
2: um
1: Oops! I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're we're all we're all internet and social media based. Most uh, most people
0: use email addresses now. Anyway. Uh, yeah,
1: and well, you can email me th- th- at
2: kim k i m at nadlerbirnath com. All right.
1: Thank you, Bill. Sure. Um, well,
3: I work for Fidelity Bank, but as we're known around town, the one with the Lion. So, our website's lionbank com. Uh, you'll see a wealth management section there that. It has all of our bios and information. Uh, you can also email me at bill.hall at lionbank.com uh, as well.
0: All right, great. Well, I want to thank both of you uh, for being on the show, and I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gastelwitz frankel please go to our website at gastelwitzfrankel.com, and remember to follow us on Twitter at the State Dispute and use our show's hashtag #WealthMatters. Our guests today were Kim Martin, attorney at Beer Birnath, and Bill Hall, senior trust officer at Fidelity Bank. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here on, um, at uh, Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. <music>